And you know, that's the heart of FBC is that uh, God has done so many good things for us. He has come into our lives. He's redeemed us. He's transforming us. And we don't want it just to stay in us. We want it to be in the lives of people around us that we love and care about. And so uh, maybe you've come here because someone loved and cared for you enough to tell you about Jesus. Or maybe you made a, a decision recently to trust in Jesus and to start following him. And that's what we're here to do. FBC is here to help people find and follow Jesus Christ. And as we talk about making room for more people here, I honestly believe that, that what we're talking about is not going to just change our present right now. It's going to change future generations. We certainly are blessed as a church. And, you know, as we've been talking about rebuilding your city and having a heart for our city, today we're going to be talking about what's our role in it. What's our responsibility that God has given us? We're in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, where we're going to be looking at today. And, you know, Nehemiah, last week we talked about him seeing his heart for the city he cared for. It was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city in which God put his name. He put his people in. But it had been ransacked by the by the Babylonians years earlier. And uh, then the Babylonians got overturned by the Persians. And a God moved in the heart of a Persian king to send Zerubbabel back to rebuild the temple. After the temple was started, they had um, they, they stalled the work because they had resistance around them that kind of played with the insecurity within them. And for 15 years, the temple was not built. It was just stalled. It was just laying there in rubble. And God worked through Haggai and Zechariah, two other prophets that are in the Old Testament. And he asked them to well up in Zerubbabel the courage to fight the resistance and to rebuild the temple. After 15 years, he started rebuilding. After four years, the temple was built. Seventy years after the temple was built, God welled up in Nehemiah, go back and rebuild these walls. God was more concerned about the temple first than he was about the walls. What is he saying? He's more concerned about our heart and whether or not we're worshiping him rather than we have a strong city around us. God has your heart and my heart as the target of his work. It's always about the heart. Everything follows the heart. And, and so therefore, if we have a heart for God and a heart for the city, look out. I just think about every time we pack this room out like this, I just think about in just a few minutes, God is going to scatter you all over this city and region, and he's going to use you, if you're willing, for his purposes. Well, Nehemiah gives us a good picture about that. Now, Nehemiah started rebuilding this wall. And it's fascinating how it, how it, um, uh, how the story goes. He gets there and he, he's kind of stealth. He's kind of covert. And he spends three days surveying this wall, really verifying the reality he had heard about. And then he comes back to the people and he calls them to work. Now, I actually walked by the wall he built without noticing it was the wall he built. When I was in Jerusalem last year, I walked by this stared structure, which was, was unearthed. Isn't that a light? That's a really bright laser pointer, by the way. Um, but right here, if we could continue this on, I didn't even take the picture of it because I walked right by it, was the tower that Nehemiah rebuilt. And this is actually, there's the current wall, and there's 
the ancient city of David. In 2006, they unearthed this whole area and they came across this structure. Before it, skeptics of the Bible said, well, since we can't find Nehemiah's wall, it never existed. And Nehemiah never really existed. The Bible's a fable. But that's what we learn when you travel to Israel is that all they need to do is keep digging. And they found it. They found it. And there is that, there's that structure I just had right there. And there is the tower that Nehemiah rebuilt. Fascinating. The Bible's a real book with real people, real places, a real God who gives real promises. Go to the next one. It'll show you. This is the artist's rendering of what Nehemiah's wall looked like when it was completed. It went for about over two, it went over two miles long. And right there was that tower that I showed you in that picture. And again, there's that stair step uh, angle that, that we, that I showed you in that first picture. But in some places it was 16 feet thick. And in most places it was 30 feet high. Nehemiah called the people to action. Look what it says in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, Nehemiah is going to get, you know, what, what a great crescendo moment where everyone's ready to work. But just like the temple, when Zerubbabel started building it, they too faced resistance. Look at this resistance here. Keep reading. It says, verse 19, but when Sanballat, what a great name, the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant and Geshem, the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then he replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Think about that. He faced the same resistance that Zerubbabel did that caused Zerubbabel and the rest of the people to stall the work for the house of God for 15 years. 15 years ago was 2000. You know, 2000. I have a 15 year old. I remember 2000. But 15 years it stalled. And then Haggai and Zechariah called them back to the work. And they finished it in, a fine, in, a, in the rest of the four years there. But think about this. What would Nehemiah do? Would he crumble? He built the wall. He said, let us arise. The people said, let us arise. The, the, the resistance said, no way, not on our watch. You know, they played to some of the key things that are kind of indicators of a fall in us. When we're going along, it's real easy for us to stall the work of God in our lives or to fall in our walk with Christ. What does it, what makes someone fall? Well, there's four things I just want to go before we move on. The first one is isolation. You know, when they started building this wall, people came up and they jeered at them and they insulted them. Have you ever been jeered at? Insulted? Have you ever been accused? You're rebelling against the, against the king. What does that do to you? It isolates you. It kind of is like the animal kingdom. The lion comes in, the animals scatter, they look for the weak one. 
Yeah, that's that picture. That's this picture in our lives. Whenever we isolate ourselves, it makes us vulnerable to attack. It makes us vulnerable to be swayed by by someone accusing us. That's why I love Proverbs 18.1. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Secondly, another thing that kind of Nehemiah puts his finger on is that whole picture of independence. Of questioning the leadership. The resistance questioned the leadership. Are you rebelling against the king? Who told you you could do this? In other words, no way. You're not going to do this on our watch. Or even sometimes when we go independent, I could do it better. It's that attitude that we could do it better. Our way is the right way. And we go down, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do. Boy, you get someone who lives like that. I, I, I love what Proverbs twelve fifteen. Whenever I have that attitude, I go to Proverbs twelve fifteen. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Wow, there's been so many times I just thought, I'm going this way. I mean, after all, God's greatest desire is for me to be happy, right? And I can build that case, that false theology of happiness over holiness. And I can build that whole picture. I can make excuses for anything I want to do. I can rationalize any bad, destructive behavior I want to rationalize if I think it's right in my own eyes. I never wake up and go, my goodness, can't wait to be deceived today. (laughs) No, it's just something, just something in our lives that we've got to humble ourselves. We're better together. Independent independence is another thing. And then finally, uh, not finally, the third one is insecurity. Think about how it made them feel insecurity within that feeling that you're isolated and alone and you're you're afraid of what will happen if you keep following if you keep building boy the resistance tried to exercise their threat to defeat and kill those working to repair the wall this is fascinating they tried killing the people working on the wall which Nehemiah will respond, and we'll get into that. And then when that failed, they tried getting Nehemiah alone so they, they could take him out. Man, that insecurity in us, that fear that we have, whether it's the news that we hear from Paris or the threat, constant threat around us, when we live with that insecurity, look out. We compromise. We can compromise a lot. And then there's also greed. And I know it didn't begin with I, but give me a break. Okay, um, this this chapter in chapter five, uh, you're going to see that the people were actually selling themselves into slavery because they got so much into debt and and people were greedy. Nehemiah was a wealthy man himself, and he could have lived with greed. He could have gobbled up all the land in Jerusalem because he could have afforded it. And he could have been the big daddy in all of Jerusalem, but he decided not to. And so Nehemiah responds to each of these indicators of a fall. But before I move on, is there anything of those that are alive and well in you? Have you isolated yourself against, you know, away from the people of God, against from people who love you and give you life-giving correction or affirmation and encouragement? That's what I hear from a lot of people who separate themselves. Have you uh, chosen to kind of be more independent where It's my way or the highway, or if I could do it, especially us type A driven people, you know, I could do it better. And that attitude of I could do it better keeps you on the sidelines of God's God's work. 
I mean, it's really not about my way. It's about God's way. Uh, insecurity. I mean, we all deal with some of those. And especially if we're a threat, we're, we're afraid of what people will think if we really follow Jesus, if we really become bold with our faith, if we really were to make a sacrifice to be a part of God's work. What will people think? And really what it comes down to is we all need to realize that picture. Like Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Or maybe greed has got the best, just the wanting for more. And it causes us to oppress the work of God through us. These are the pattern of a fall or a stall as it related to people in Jerusalem. And they're true with us. But look at how Nehemiah addresses it. He calls them, if they're isolated, to unite, gather around, get together. Come on, people, let's get together and build this wall. He calls them to each take a responsibility, not to watch on the sidelines, not to be a bystander, but to be a builder with a key place. And he called them away from insecurity to actually, and he equipped them to fight, fight for what was right. And then he called them, instead of just being greedy, to give, to be generous. Let's talk about these, because I think they're important values for us as we consider finishing the work God has for us as a church family. Let's talk about that first one. When he called them to unite, let's talk about unity. The value of unity in a church is so important. Here, what what does he say? Look at it again in chapter 2, verse 17. We read it before, but let me read it again. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. That's a great Scrabble word, derision. We may not know what it means, but it literally means ridicule, embarrassment, because that was God's city. That's where God's glory was. And, and, and that was being ridiculed. And he was calling them to come together, build this, because Nehemiah knows, as the heart of God knows, that we are better together than we are alone. Do you know we're the most alone generation? We're caught up in the next notification on our screen where this week on Thanksgiving, we're going to travel hundreds or thousands of miles to sit in a room and look at a screen with relatives that we love. (laughs) Or maybe we can put those down and get out of isolation and actually engage the people around us and have relationships deepen if we were just moved away from isolation and into uniting with our families. God wants to unite it. And the Holy Spirit is takes great pleasure when we're united and not divided. Do you realize that's the name for the church? Ecclesia is the is the Greek word for church. And it literally means ek call out. I mean, ek means out and kaleo means called. So you're called out of your world and into the family of God. It's what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter one, verse 13. He says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have been called out of this world into the work of God. And the church needs to realize that we need to be called into unity with each other. The second thing that Nehemiah called them into was to take responsibility. And we need to practice responsibility if God is going to finish his work in us. 
Chapter 3 is an interesting chapter of Nehemiah. It's one that if you don't read the Bible uh, a lot, will probably discourage you because there's Old Testament ancient names. And we don't name our kids them anymore. We have like Charlie or John or Joe like me. or other, We have one or two syllable names. These are three or four syllable names and they're really hard. And if you've never read the Bible or opening up the Bible or just beginning, it's a frustrating chapter to read because you can't pronounce the names. I don't want you to remember the names. I want you to remember what Nehemiah called them to. He put them to and he called them to work together as families and he called them out of their tribes and out of their clans and into the relationships that they love. But they also he also put them into places. Let me read here. Turn with me to chapter three, verse 23. He says, after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. What's common in all those names? They repaired it beside his own house. This was genius. This was genius, what Nehemiah was doing. He was stringing them out, but he put them to work right outside their homes. Why is that important? Because if that's the security you have against someone attacking, where are you going to spend the most time building it? Right outside of your house. Why? Because your family, your kids, your grandparents, your parents are all in jeopardy if you don't build a wall that's secure enough for that. Genius. It's genius. And what it really means is we do better when we take responsibility. We will do better when we're, we move from irresponsibility into taking initiative and doing something. We're, we do better in a team. We all know that. When we're working together and t- each taking ownership. How many of you in college have done the four-person project that you did the night before because no one else worked on it? And you got an A and the person who didn't work at all, they got an A. And the person who spent most of the class time sleeping or playing Xbox, they got an A. That's not fair. And their irresponsibility became your responsibility. That's life, isn't it? That's our government. That's so many things that can happen in our world is our irresponsibility can become or will become someone else's responsibility. You're going to have Thanksgiving dinner this week. And you're going to have a full stomach, hopefully. And you're going to draw away from the table. And you're going to leave uh, the kitchen area with all the plates and pots just stacked to the ceiling. And you're going to take a nap, right? <laughs> Whose responsibility is it to clean the dishes? No nudge zone. Don't point right now. <laughs> Whose responsibility? If you go and take that nap... Your spouse is going to have to clean up the dishes. Why don't you both own that? Okay, I just ruined your Thanksgiving, right? (laughs) No, but someone's going to have to work. Someone's going to have hands that are pruned if you don't. And so it's an opportunity when you have a challenge like that to do that together. Now, just remember, I told you, so you're now accountable with it, right? that, That whole picture of responsibility is key. And if God's work is going to get done, it's not going to be because those people are doing it's because my church is doing this and I am part of this family. This is my family, not their family. 
That's one of our challenges is, is God has entrusted us with more people is that we have a lot of people just kind of watching and not a lot of people, as many people, working. And yet we're a family. And families get together. And families take responsibility. Sometimes we're cleaning out the garage, which no one wants to do, but we do it. Sometimes we're changing diapers, which no one likes to do, but we do it because we love the kids. Some of us get great times to go on vacation together and have great celebrations together to enjoy God's work together. And those are great moments. But we all take responsibility with that. We all can take ownership in it. But Nehemiah then called them to tenacity. And this is a great word. I love this word because it's to the right of courageous. And he's calling them to endure amidst this resistance. Chapter 4. If you flip the page over to chapter 4, you'll see the threat coming to them and how Nehemiah hits the threat. He basically spread them out and they were too thin to defend themselves just one by one. So he set them out and if they had a problem, sound the horn and everyone would gather around there. He divided up half the people to protect them and half the people to work. And the people who who are working, he even gave them swords so that they could work, but they'd always have the sword if they were attacked to defend themselves. Think about that. And then that even, even wasn't enough. They were still afraid. So he comes to them and this is what he says to them. Chapter four, verse 14. He says, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Sometimes the work of God requires us to fight for it. Sometimes it requires of us of us to put away and fight the resistance within us to isolate or go independent or to be insecure and to look to the Lord. Remember who he is. Remember his promises to us. Remember what he started. He will finish. So rise up and build and fight for your sometimes amidst a culture. That would plan everything for us. So we're just chasing our kids from one activity. We as parents have to say, no, no, we've got to stop the insanity of just chasing kids and start nurturing the hearts of our children towards God. Sometimes it requires us to fight. Here's the truth about resistance. It's not forever. Resistance tends to push. And and if it can get through, it goes through. But if it doesn't, it tends to move on to the other weak link. Do you ever realize that the first time you try something or the first time you make a decision to be bold in your life is the most difficult? It's because you're having to hit that resistance. But after you make that decision, guess what happens? Guess what wells up? Tenacity wells up. You actually train your mind and train your heart on the Lord to trust in him. And it's easier the next time. But as long as you stay passive and don't do it the first time, it's just can't do it, never done it, don't trust it, going to isolate myself. And we make that decision, decision too easy. You know how easy it is for us to give up in our world right now? I just realized in my own heart, when I come across something in the Bible that I don't understand, just skim by it, don't, don't stop, don't go deep, skim by it. I just want to keep the surface stuff. When really God has a lot of deeper stuff for us. Growth always requires us to have tenacity. Now, if you're studying for the test, the um, 10 minutes before the test, and that's all you gave it, 
If you haven't really practiced tenacity and fought the schedule to, to do that, we're all called into it. Our education works well. Employment, when you're in a job and you solve problems and you stick around to get them rather than just to go for the low-hanging fruit all over around you, you know, that's what people know you as. Someone who can deal with the difficult things. Do you know families actually like having difficult discussions rather than keeping the elephant in the living room and ignoring it. Do you know church families are healthier when we talk about difficult things? But we do it with tenacity because we remember our God through every step, through every challenge we have. If we can talk about it and then look to God and trust him, look out, look out. God becomes greater. He receives the glory. So be tenacious. And then the last thing he shared with them, less value he gave them was generosity. Turn with me to chapter five. There's two words that outline chapter five. One is justice and the second one is generosity. They sound like they start with the same letter, but they have different ones. Uh, ju- the, the, the issue with justice is that people were actually selling themselves into slavery to pay their bills their tax bills, that the governor at the time was exacting from them. And the very same people that were liberated to go back and build the wall became slaves again. That's how the third world country collects their bills. You're sold into slavery. Most of them have nothing to do with your race. It's because of the debt you owe. And so Jeremiah, I mean, Nehemiah saw this. And he said, no, 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 we didn't come here to become slaves again. So he said to the wealthy people and the nobles and the governmental leaders there who were exploiting the people, he said, stop, stop and forgive their debt, set them free. I know it's going to cost you something, but God didn't bring us back here so we could be slaves again. Stop. And then he gave him a big visual. He shook out his robe and he said, may God shake you out if you don't do this. And the people said, okay, we'll forgive them of their debt. And then he said, I'll be generous. He was a wealthy man, but look at how he details his wealth. He says, I also persevered in the work on this wall and I acquired no land. Why did he acquire land? Because he could have. He could have bought up the whole thing and had a huge, you know, huge amount of wealth and control and power. But no, he wanted to make God great again in his city, not his name. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table, look at this Thanksgiving table, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. That's the men. There were also women and children around that table. And then he details it, an ox a day, six sheep a day. And he details how much he gave to fund this effort each day. It required him to be generous. Generosity has nothing to do with an amount. It has everything to do with what God has entrusted to you. So you're never called to be generous with stuff God hasn't given you. He only calls you to be generous with what he has given you. And so therefore, if you make a little... You can be generous with a little. If you make a ton, you can be generous with a ton. We kind of get hung up on amounts. God is more concerned about a proportion of what he's given you. And we realize that everything we have is from him. He owns it. The next breath you take was a gift from God. He owns it all. We're just stewards of what he's given. He's called us to live generously. Now think about this. 
He called them. Come on, people. Smile on your brother. Get together. Love one another again. Take responsibility. Take ownership. Stop watching this. Don't be a bystander. Be a builder in this in this wall. Come on in and fight for your families. Remember, this threat is the very hearts and the lives of your children. Fight for it. Be tenacious and be generous as this thing is built. And the people rallied around, the, around it. They turned from the resistance. Turn with me to chapter 6. Look at the result. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul, which is a Persian month calendar, in 52 days. Underline 52 days if you've got a pen or pencil handy. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. What a great story. 52 days. I mean, that would be like going back to September 30th right now. Remember what you were doing September 30th? That was 52 days ago. And they built something two miles long, over two miles long, 16 feet wide, 30 feet high. Amazing. Only God could have done this. Who gets the glory for this work? God does. Who gets the glory for this church? God does. Something's happening here. That even those most associated with uh, leadership and involvement here have to stand back and go, only God could do this. Every day I drive to work here at Fellowship Bible Church, that's the constant theme I hear. Only God could have done this. Only God can change lives. Only God can well up and stir in the hearts of people. Only God can work in the hearts of people to turn it towards this city And to transform this city with the truth, with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They were brought together. They took responsibility. They fought and they were generous. That was their wall. And God was made greater in that city because of it. Here's our wall. Remember that picture? That was a month and a half ago. Some of you are parking in those new luxurious parking spots right out there. But that was our reality, and it still is our reality. We are looking to finish this wall, not in Old Testament 52 days, but in New Testament, by the grace of God, 150 days. We want to finish this for Easter. Why? Because God entrusts us with three times the people on Easter weekend. And we want to show them that we've made a church that's available for them. They can be part of our family. We always want to show that. That's from the moment FBC started. We said, we want to have one more chair for my family or my friends. Because we want what we have to be given to them. And and we want to be a place where people can find and follow Jesus Christ. That's our wall. And we have a reality. Last week I shared with you very openly. We've had some things that we didn't plan for in this reality. Once, we literally had to build a 325-foot wall down by that stream. It was encroaching in, and it would have undercut the foundation of the new church. So we had to build a wall. It was expensive. Man, was it expensive. 900 cubic yards of concrete. That's 90 truckloads of concrete. That cost big bucks. The other thing is, is that some who made pledges, it just didn't work the way they had expected, and... And we're short about $500,000 on the pledges that people have, have given. And you know what? That's just our reality. 
It's no one's fault. It's just our reality. You know, for some time, when I heard these realities, I would be more like Zerubbabel. I went home angry. I just went, oh, man, how are we going to do this? I just don't, I don't know how we can do this. And what I've had to read is the book of Nehemiah. What I've had to read is the book of Zechariah, where Zechariah said to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And I started realizing this is not my problem. This is our challenge. This is our opportunity. I can't change your heart, but if God stirred in your heart, we already have the money. God's already entrusted each of us with plenty of money to provide for that. Our current realities uh, show a whole bunch of things. But, but as I as I talk to you about these next three, these past three weeks, we've been talking about this and calling you to think about where you might be able to contribute towards this. Um, I've asked you to uh, take a look at this, or Frank did earlier. Would you just grab this envelope that you've been given as you came in? And ushers, if you just come down, if you need one, just raise your hand. I want everyone to take a look at it and just take a look at it. There's one there. Okay. Thanks for looking at this. And open up the flap. And there's just an opportunity for everyone as we come together to take ownership in what God is doing here. And throughout this week and next, we're providing tours for you to actually go and see the values and experience what we're trying to do with those areas to make room for more people. But two years ago, when we did an initial thing like this, we had 426 families commit to supporting over and above what they gave here for three years. That's sacrificial. We wanted to keep our kids fed while we also built our house. (laughs) And so they were giving to, in a large part, to fund our budget. But they were also giving beyond that to make it build that expansion. Right now, we have 1,700 families. If you're single, you're a family. If you have 12 kids, you're a family. But we have 1,700 family units who come to FBC each month. Okay? Look at the difference. Now, of those 426 families who gave, this is how much they gave over three years. They gave $4 million. Isn't that awesome? That's generous. And what we need from the 1,300 remaining families who are here out of the 1,700 is we need to raise about a million dollars. And you will go, when you look at that, 1,300 could do that in a second. They don't need me. But here's the deal. This is not an obligation. Certainly not guilt and shame. But if you could have an opportunity to come together, take ownership, move out of the sidelines into the game of what God is doing, if you could fight whatever resistance is around you or even the sway of our culture that says spend it all rather than be generous. And we're to be generous for just this time. For this time, to start this time or to continue this time for six months, folks, we could finish it. That's not a question in my mind. We could finish it. So what I want you to do is I want you to fill this out or you could actually go online and click one of those buttons and, um, and, and go online and, and fill out your response. If you can, we need this today. But let me just show you a little bit how it might look in your life. Because I know that in a church our size, it's, it's easy to have the question of how can little me make a difference in that. 
Let me just show you how you can make a difference. What if out of those 1,300 families, can we go to that next one? Yeah, just move on through that. Okay. What if you gave $10 a month for the next six months? You'd give a total of $60 to it. $10 is $2.50 a week. That's half a Starbucks. When you're ordering at Starbucks, you could just go, I fill it halfway, and I only want to pay $2.50 for it because I'm giving the other $2.50 to my church, okay? What God is doing at my church. Or you could drink half of it and put it in the refrigerator and then warm it up next week, okay? Whatever you do, this is not that big of a sacrifice. But if a 100 of you could do that, it would raise $6,000. What's $6,000 over there? It's $6,000 we don't have. What about if you could give $25 a month? Well, over six months, it's $150. And with 150 families, that number's growing. But God's given you more than perhaps the person of $10 a month. Maybe that $10 a month is a junior hire. My kids gave through to this two years ago. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe God's blessed you with more and you could give $50 or $100 or $200 if God has even put you around that median income in this area. You could give more because you received more from God. But look at what happens. That number, that number is kind of in relationship to how incomes are. And a few God has really blessed and you could give more. Some of you could even give more than that. You could be more like Nehemiah. And give generously to the Lord. And the result is, we have no problem having the resources to do that. And God is already entrusted with this. We don't all have to have raises. We don't have to win the lotto. But think with me, over the next six months, the resources God is going to entrust to you. Some is God's going to give you a bonus. Some God's going to give you a tax return. Over these next six months, think about how can I point these to the work of God and help my church finish it. I'd like you to consider that. And if you can, it would really help us in planning. Fill this out and turn it in in either one of the offering slots on the way back or at the Welcome Center uh, so that we can plan. Now, I want to end this time with a blessing. Every Thanksgiving around my table, I go around to each member seated there and I talk about three words that I know them to be. I talk about three words that I've heard from other people say about them, and they're positive words. And I go around and just kind of thank the Lord for them, and I I give them a blessing. Because every child and every one of us longs for a blessing from God. And we can show that blessing that God has given us by being a blessing to people around us. So I want to tell you what kind of blessing you are as a church family. At the core of who we are, in other words, if you show up and own what God is doing here, here's the three words I hear consistently. Inside and outside of this church, they loved me. FBC is a loving church. From our security guy out there waving as you turn in the parking lot to someone shaking your hand as you walk in, to your small group leader, to someone who's changing your child's diaper in the nursery, to someone who's coming alongside and mentoring your child throughout first through sixth grade or the reverb seventh through twelfth grade. We're a loving church, and I can't command you to love. That's something God has to do in your heart, that once you have his love, it just overflows. But you're loving. Second of all, you're involved. 
I hear this not only inside this church of how many volunteers we have. We have inside our church 700 volunteers a month. Outside of our church, we have about 600 volunteers a month. Think about that. Here's what I hear from places like NetReach or Young Life or the Rescue Mission or other places around our city where you have shown up. You said they show up and they stay here. They don't just do something to, to, you know, to show up and have a flashpot experience. They want to build relationships. They stay in these places. You are involved. And God is using you as a blessing. The third thing you are is generous. And think about some of the sacrifices we have had to make to make more room for more people here. I think about this, and you know what? Just being involved in it personally and giving generously here, I can tell you it's the best investment I've ever made. I love to give. And this church is the reason why. It totally transformed my heart. I I like that we can talk about it and not have guilt and shame, that we can be called more to an opportunity than an obligation. We all have had maybe church experiences where someone beat you over the head and made it your obligation. Here's an opportunity that can change the future for a 100 years in the lives of people. We're not going to be here in a 100 years, but someone will if we're faithful with the gospel. And people are going to find and follow Jesus because we made room for them. And you can play a role. So let's pray. And let me thank the Lord for you as you respond. Heavenly Father, you have united us through Jesus Christ. You have given us responsibility to build your church. You have empowered us with tenacity to fight the sway of the world and and make an everlasting and eternal influence in this world. And you have blessed us to be a blessing. So we thank you for this opportunity. And we ask that you will use whatever we give to work immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.